All right. It's good to see everyone. We are going to be doing communion tonight. But before we do that, I want to go forward a little bit in our verse-by-verse study of Galatians. So would you turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4? We're going to start in verse 21, page 1,340, if you're using a Bible under the seat in front of you. Father, we thank you for just a a beautiful time of worship, songs that celebrate all the amazing things you've done in our lives and how amazing you are. Oh, you've been so good to us. And I pray, Lord, that we would be reminded once again of how much you've done for us this evening as we consider the great sacrifice that you made, as we remember that in this ordinance and as we consider your word tonight. Bless this time, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you remember there are basically two approaches to God that are being compared in the book of Galatians. The first approach we would call the law approach. And this is where you try to work to get to heaven. You climb the stairs, you climb the ladder, you be religious, you do good works, you try to impress God with how nice and good you are, and you earn heaven, you try to earn heaven. Now does that work? Absolutely not. God is perfect. His demands are perfection. The law approach doesn't work. And then you have the grace approach. This is where you realize you're sinful. This is where you realize that you're not good enough. And you fall on your face before God and you cry out to God for mercy and grace. And God in his grace has provided the way by which you can be forgiven of all your sins. Jesus, his son, died on the cross for your sins and rose again that third day. And when you place your faith and trust in him, by that simple act of faith, all of your sins are forgiven. You become a child of God. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. That's the gospel message. That is the message that Paul preaches in the book of Galatians. And by the way, that is the message of the entire Bible. That is the good news. So, question tonight. Could you combine those two approaches? Could you mix them? For instance, let's say that you get saved through the grace approach. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're saved, you're forgiven. And then when you're a Christian, would you live the Christian life by the law approach? Remember, that's what the Judaizers were trying to do to those Christians in the churches in Galatia. 
They were adding the law to the equation. Many false teachers do that. They add the law to the equation. Can you mix them? Can you combine them? Well, let's see what Paul says in our text this evening. Look at verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? So you want to be under the law. You know that salvation is through faith in Christ Jesus, but you want to add the law. You want to be under the law, Paul says. Well, have you heard from the law? Do you understand what the law that you want to live under says about itself? So Paul is basically saying, I'd like to give you a Bible study tonight. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the law. And let's see what the law says about mixing. And so Paul is going to take us back once again. This is several times that he's done so in the book of Galatians. He's going to take us back to Abraham. Now, he's going to do something very interesting. He's going to use a technique. Just let me give you a heads up before we get into the details. Paul is going to allegorize some literal details in the life of Abraham. In other words, Paul is going to attach symbolic meaning to some literal details in the life of Abraham. And it's okay if Paul allegorizes scripture And it's okay that his allegorized interpretations of Scripture are in the New Testament. It's okay to Paul to do that. It's not okay for us to do that. We should not allegorize Scripture. I've heard some of the craziest interpretations as people try to attach all kinds of weird uh, meanings and symbolic meanings to the Scripture. We're not allowed to do that, but Paul is allowed to do that, okay? Okay. And he does that in this text. And it's sanctioned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so first of all, let's look at the literal story. Look at verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. So, Paul, it is written, and I'm not going to have you turn there, but Paul is referring to Genesis chapter 16, 17, and chapter 21. Paul had two sons. Not Paul, Abraham had two sons. One son was named Ishmael, and one son was named Isaac. Now, you remember the details of the story. God commanded Abraham to leave his home, go into the promised land, and he promised that he was going to make a big nation out of Abraham, that Abraham was going to have descendants like the stars in the sky and like the sand on the seashore. So they move to the promised land, and the problem is Sarah can't have kids. She's barren. She's not able to conceive. 
Abraham and Sarah got a little impatient. And in those days, if a wife couldn't conceive, it was allowable for her to take a maidservant. It was even legal and use a maidservant in her household as a surrogate mother to give to the husband. And she could have a son by the surrogate mother. Well, that's what Abraham and Sarah did. They had an Egyptian maidservant in their home. Do you recall what her name was? Hagar. Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham. They had sexual relations. Hagar conceived and gave birth to a son by the name of Ishmael. Now, notice what Paul points out. Hagar was a slave woman. Ishmael was the son of a slave woman. This whole arrangement has to do with bondage and slavery. Notice that he also says in verse 23, he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the what? To the flesh. This was a fleshly arrangement. This was Abraham and Sarah trying to help God out. By the way, don't ever try to help God out, okay? They're getting impatient. They came up with this arrangement. The scripture in that story doesn't even mention that they asked God about it. They just did it. Okay? Fourteen years later, after Ishmael is born, Abraham and Sarah have a miracle baby. They have a baby boy. They have a son. They name him Isaac. Do you remember what Isaac means? Laughter. You know why they're laughing? Why they named him laughter? They can't believe they've got a baby boy. That was a miracle son. Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was in her 90s. God supernaturally enabled them to have this miracle baby boy who was conceived and born in the same way as all are, but miraculously so, and that God allowed people beyond the age of childbearing to do it. Now, the detail that Paul wants you to see here is Sarah's a free woman. Isaac's the son of a free woman. Isaac is the true son of promise. And there's a supernatural birth associated with this union between Sarah and Abraham. So there's the literal details. Think of this. You got Hagar Ishmael. Slavery, the flesh, Sarah and Isaac, supernatural, the promise, freedom. Okay, now watch how Paul adds symbolism to this story. Verse 24. Which things are symbolic. 
For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it's written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. So I think it's real easy to see the symbolism. Hagar and Ishmael, they represent the old covenant. They represent the law. They represent Mount Sinai, where the law was given. They represent earthly Jerusalem in the time when Paul was alive, which was the center of Judaism and the seat of the law. Hagar and Ishmael represent the law approach. You please God by trying to keep a law. It's the fleshly approach. And it fails. It results in bondage. Sarah and Isaac. They represent the new covenant. They represent Jerusalem above. They represent the grace approach. They represent supernatural birth. They represent freedom. They represent the promise of God. So Sarah and Isaac represent the new covenant and grace. Hagar and Ishmael represent the old covenant and law. Where do we as Christians fit? Who do we belong to? Verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. So, Christian, we are forever united to Sarah and Isaac. We're under the new covenant. We're free. We're not under the old covenant. So those are the symbolic meanings. Now, let's go back to what happened in the written law back in Genesis chapter 21. You remember that with the whole Hagar, Ishmael, Sarah, Abraham thing, it created quite some tension. Did it not in the house? In fact, if you remember the story, Sarah despised Hagar. She was so jealous of Hagar. She would get filled with hatred every time she saw Hagar and Ishmael together. They didn't like each other. And then when Isaac came along, the tension got worse. There was animosity between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael didn't like Isaac. By the way, Ishmael still doesn't like Isaac. 
Did you know that Ishmael would be the father of the Arabs? Isaac would be the father of the Jews, and many of the Arabs would become Muslims. And how do they get along? Not so good, do they? Don't ever try to help out God. You'll make a big mess, right? Don't ever do it. Well, when Isaac was three years old, as we're told in the written law, he was weaned. And Abraham and Sarah had a big party for their little boy who's been weaned. They had this huge celebration, all this gathering. Ishmael laughed at Isaac. Ishmael mocked Isaac. Ishmael sort of picked on Isaac. Sarah saw that. And Mama Bear got angry. In fact, she told Abraham, get rid of that bondwoman and her son. That boy will have no heir, will not share in the heir of Isaac. Cast her out. Abraham was sad. He loved Ishmael. He went and spoke to God about it. And God said, you know what Sarah said? Do. Cast her out, her and her boy. Now, it sounds harsh, but remember, God would clarify, I'm going to take care of them. And God did take care of Hagar and Ishmael. But God said, Ishmael does not share in the promise seed. That belongs to Isaac and Isaac alone. So now look how Paul adds the symbolism to that. Verse 29. But as he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So in the story, Sarah says to Abraham, cast out the bondwoman and the son. Get rid. Keep the free woman and her son. Symbolically, Cast out the law system, which Hagar and Ishmael symbolize. Live in the grace system, which Sarah and Isaac represent. So Paul basically says, can you combine the grace system and the law system? And what's the answer? Absolutely not. And he tells those Judaizers who are trying to do that, your law tells you to cast out the law when grace comes. So 
in this story and in all of the other arguments that we've studied here in the book of Galatians, it cannot be clearer in the scripture. If you are a born-again Christian, you are not under law. You are under grace, period. You're saved through faith in Christ alone, by grace. And as the child of God, you live in the system of grace. You're free. You're not a slave. You're not beholden to any law anymore. Now, if you believe that, if you believe that, you'll be persecuted by people in the law system. Paul says something really interesting there in verse 29. He says, But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Ishmael, the representer of the law, persecuted Isaac, who represents grace. And Paul says, that's still the case. And if you think about it through all of church history, true Christians who believe in salvation through faith alone and live in the grace system have been persecuted by legalists. In fact, Jesus was persecuted by the legalists of his day. Gospel of John says, through Moses came the law, but in Jesus came grace and truth. And the most religious people in the days of Jesus persecuted Jesus. In church history, early part of the church, it was the Jewish elite, the religious people trying to protect their law, that persecuted the early Christians. In fact, Paul, if you remember, before he came to Christ, was one of the chief persecutors. He got saved. He begins teaching faith, salvation by faith alone in the grace system. And he got persecuted by all of the religious elite of his day. And if you really think about it, through all of church history, some of the most heated battles have been through religious people against the simple Christian who believes that you're saved through faith in a grace system. Ishmael has always persecuted Isaac. And that continues to the day. By the way, I've known some Christians who kind of remind me of that dude up there. You know, I've, I've met Christians that say, oh, you're one of the grace guys. You believe in the, uh, the easy Christianity. You drink the milk. 
Well, I'm real committed to Christ. Here's what I do. I eat the meat. Arrogant people who think they're more spiritual because they live a more legalistic life. My answer to them is cast out the law system. Live in the grace system. You know, I don't care how religious you are, how committed you might think you are, how disciplined you might think you are. You are sunk without the grace of God. Amen? We are all under grace. That is our only hope. There's nothing we could have ever done to deserve it. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he saves us and he changes us. And he makes us one of his own. Through faith. Not by keeping the law. So after that allegory, Paul gets real straightforward and with straightforward language. Gives us the exhortation in verse 1 of chapter 5. Stand fast, therefore. In the liberty by which Christ has made us free, do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. My brother, my sister in Christ, there will be all kinds of people that want to come into your life and get you off track. There will be people that want to get you a part of their system. And you must stand fast in the liberty that you have in Jesus Christ. Jesus made you free. And don't you ever get entangled again under a law. Don't be yoked to the law. I've always loved this saying of Jesus. Jesus said to me, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's what Jesus wants for you. Having a relationship with Jesus Christ is beautiful. It's wonderful. It's what opens the supernatural. It's not keeping a law. In fact, look what Paul warns of. Verse 2, he says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you've fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. The Judaizers 
were going into those churches in Galatia, they were fine Gentiles who became Christians. They said, Mr. Gentile, you need to be circumcised. You need to go through the rite of circumcision. You need to become Jewish. Paul says, it's entirely of grace. Circumcision, uncircumcision, has no bearing. Paul says, don't get circumcised. Don't even put yourself under one detail of the law. He says, if you get circumcised, then you're going to become a debtor to the whole law. And you're going to be in so much bondage. Don't do it. And the the hardest thing he says. Verse 2. If you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Verse 4. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law. You've fallen from grace. So if you go back to this, this law system, you've fallen from the grace system. Christ is no prophet to you. You're estranged from Christ. Now that doesn't mean that you lose your salvation. That means that you begin to live life as if what Christ did at the cross was not enough. You become estranged from Christ. See, what happens when you go into the law system is you begin to depend upon yourself. And it's all about you and the rules that you keep. When true Christianity is living in a relationship with Jesus. Dependent upon Jesus Christ. Last week, I put up this little chart the gifts that you are given when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and I added more presents today from our text you're under his grace you enter into a community of perfect equality there's no Jew there's no Gentile no male no female no slave no Master, you're born again. You become an adult child immediately when you give your life to Jesus Christ. That means you become an heir of God. You're given the Holy Spirit. You're given an intimate relationship with God. You're a child of promise. You become a son or daughter of God. You put on Christ. You're joined to Christ. You're justified. That is, you're declared righteous you're set free and you become the seed of Abraham all through faith in Christ that's what he died for that's why Christ died he didn't die so you could join a new religion And enter a whole bunch of new rules. Living under law is bondage. 
Christ died so that you could be forgiven once and for all and so that you could become absolutely born again and live in a wonderful relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Not so that you live the rest of your law, your life keeping a law. Big difference. You know, there's a verse that I think of every Christmas, and I think it's just this amazing thing. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty, that you through his poverty might become rich. That's the heart of Christ. That's the heart of Christianity. That's our only hope. In our own strength, we're sinful. We're weak. We're poor. Jesus, though he was rich as rich could be, for our sakes became as poor as poor could be, so that we who are as poor as poor could be could become as rich as rich could be. My friend, don't ever forget that about the Christian faith. Christianity is not one of the many religions. Most every religion, in fact, every religion on planet Earth is that. Doesn't work. Christianity says you can't. You admit that you're weak and you fall on your face. You ask him to be your Lord and Savior. He dies on the cross for your sins. So you get all that. You know, when we forget this principle, we lose the joy of our Christian faith. Christianity is not about a book. It's about a person. The person of Jesus Christ. True Christianity is not about law. It's about grace. True Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with God through faith in Christ Jesus. True Christianity is not about what we do for God. It's all about what God has done for us. True Christianity is not attention on yourself. And what do I have to do? In true Christianity, all attention is on Christ. And following after him. Throughout church history, people have tried to attack that. People will try to attack that in your life. In fact, you might even be a part of the problem. You might think, well, I need to do these certain things. 
Now you remember, you follow hard after Christ. He who is rich became poor for you. And I do believe that that is why we are commanded to keep this ordination that we call communion regularly. Because it reminds us. Reminds us of what Christ did and what we have in him. So would you bow your heads with me? Would you, let's dim the lights. Let's have the worship band come up. As we sit at the table tonight, can I ask you, um, let's just rest in his grace tonight, shall we? Let's just rest in his love. Let's worship him. Let's thank him. My brother and my sister in Christ, be reminded tonight how much God loves you. And his love for you is not dependent upon your effort, the way you perform. He just loves you. He died for you. He rose again. You're his child. You're free. And he died on the cross for you. Maybe you've really been impacted by what other people are telling you or maybe what you say to yourself. But listen, God loves you just the way you are. His grace is upon you. If you've received him, if you've placed your faith in him, your sins are forgiven. You're declared righteous. You're a child of God. You're in his family. That's why he died. So thank him for that tonight.
it's always good at the communion table to remember that. To return to him. Now, if you're here this evening and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you right now. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Simply place your faith in him through a a cry out of the heart, a prayer. Say in your heart, Lord Jesus, I throw myself at you. I recognize that I could never be good enough to please you. Could never be religious enough. So I need your grace. I need your mercy. I open my heart to you. Wash away all my sins. I place my faith and trust in you. Make me brand new. Fill me with your spirit. And help me to walk in a dynamic relationship with you. Jesus' name, amen.